Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Heads up that this is the second part of a two-part series on the Lincoln County War and Billy the Kid. Be sure to check out part one and then come back here for the rest of the story. After the death of lawyer Alexander McSween during the five-day Battle of Lincoln, the now no longer deputized posse called the Regulators disbanded. The Lincoln County War appeared to be over. This was a huge relief for many, including politicians of the time who were tired of dealing with all this bloodshed and mayhem. Plus, the situation was generating news stories that ran in newspapers nationwide. Suddenly, this small, unknown area in southeastern New Mexico was making national news. Lincoln County citizens weren't amused. Nor was a fellow named Lou Wallace, who was appointed governor of the New Mexico Territory, by President Rutherford B. Hayes just after McSween's death. Lou Wallace knew that some of the former desperados were worried that they could be arrested at any point for whatever role they had played during the ordeal, so he concocted something of an olive branch designed to keep the peace. Josh Taylor of the Wild West Extravaganza podcast. He offers a blanket amnesty for a lot of people, so that's incentive to stop fighting. Well, incentive for some people. A lot of people involved in the violence didn't have legal charges pending, but those who already had been indicted for murder were still on law enforcement's wanted list. And that list included the person at the heart of today's episode, Billy the Kid. Last episode, we delved into the Lincoln County War to explain the big conflict that put Henry McCarty, alias Henry Antrim, alias William H. Bonney, alias Billy the Kid, on the map. It's an important part of his backstory, but there's a lot more to this legendary outlaw than a spat between businessmen. Despite his name being essentially synonymous with the Wild West and his story the subject of multiple movies, Billy's origins are actually a bit of a mystery. As Robert M. Utley wrote in his book, Billy the Kid, A Short and Violent Life, quote, a core of diligent researchers has tracked him in census records, city directories, baptismal and marriage registers, newspapers, and other sources. Discoveries have been tantalizingly suggestive, but rarely conclusive, end quote. Tracking people down is tough, especially when they lived 100-plus years ago. I can attest to this. It seems like it'd be easy enough, but at least spells out how he and other historians went about trying to confirm Billy's age. He found documentation that on March 1, 1873, then 13-year-old Henry McCarty was witness, alongside his brother Joe, to his mother's remarriage to a man named William Antrim. Side note, 
While I'll mention Billy's aliases at given periods, I'll default to calling him Billy because otherwise my head might explode in confusion. Anyway, William Antrim was a 30-year-old man marrying Catherine McCarty, age 43. The couple had met some eight years prior after Catherine, a widow, had moved from New York to Indianapolis. A stopgap 1868 census identifies her at that time as the widow of Michael McCarty. But when you search records, hoping to find Catherine and Michael back in New York, you come up empty. Instead, you find two Catherine McCartys, one who was married to a guy named Patrick at some point, and another who was either unmarried or married to someone unnamed in the census. Depending on which you believe was the right Catherine, Billy was born in either September or November of 1859, and his brother Joe was either younger than he was or five years older. I'm telling you, this job can be confusing sometimes. There is so much we don't know. Almost every facet of his life is undocumented. We don't really know where he was born. We don't know when he was born, exactly. And even his death, there's a ton of mystery there as well. We'll talk more about the death part later. For now, what we know is that in 1870, Billy's mom is documented to have lived in Wichita, Kansas, as did her husband-to-be, Bill Antrim. Both Catherine and Bill were successful enough in Wichita that they could buy land. A newspaper noted that, quote, the city laundry is kept by Mrs. McCarty, to whom we recommend those who wish to have their linen made clean, end quote. By the time Catherine and Bill Antrim married, the two had moved to Silver City within what was still the New Mexico Territory. New Mexico, the state, wouldn't be a thing until 1912. Silver City, New Mexico, was a interesting place. This is historian Drew Gomber speaking in a documentary called Billy the Kid, The True Story. It was a very rough town, and of course the miners were very rough, a lot of fighting in the streets, that kind of thing. Billy's mom was a gregarious Irish woman who everybody seemed to like. And she had a boarding house in Silver City, and everyone who encountered her said that she was really kind of a very nice lady. Bill Antrim, on the other hand, was not so well reputed. He was known as something of a ne'er-do-well minor who didn't much care for his stepsons. Billy attended school in a one-room building where he went by his stepfather's surname and it seemed was largely a decent student, or at least not a troublesome one. Historian Leon Metz. It would appear that Billy the Kid was a likable youngster. Most of the stories that have been passed down refer to him as Kid Antrim. The indications are that he was likable, that he got along well with people. But then Billy's mom, Catherine, died. He was 15 years old when her death was announced in the Silver City News. Died in Silver City on Wednesday the 16th, Catherine, wife of William Antrim, aged 45 years. Mrs. Antrim came to Silver City about one year ago, since which time her health has not been good, having suffered from an affection of the lungs. And for the last four months, she has been confined to her bed. Billy and his stepfather had never been close, so after his wife's death, Bill Antrim packed up and moved to California, leaving Billy and his brother Joe to fend for themselves in Silver City. It's around this point that Billy's reputation shifted to that of a street gammon, as Utley wrote. Billy was essentially an orphan at that moment, but he was prone to start to hanging out with the wrong crowd, and one only wonders what would have happened to him if he still would have had his mother. 
That wrong crowd he began hanging out with naturally led to trouble, and soon after Catherine's death, Billy's known to have committed his first crime. And it was the definition of petty. He stole some laundry and hid the laundry in his room. After he was caught, the local sheriff, who happened to be the father of one of Billy's good friends, and if you've ever lived in a small town, you know that the wildest kids are the sheriff's kid and the preacher's kid. Anyway, that gross generalization came courtesy of Bob Bosebell, editor of True West magazine. Because I have lived in small towns where this was totally true, I'll allow it. Anyway, the sheriff took it upon himself to decide that he should teach Billy a lesson to set him on the straight and narrow, because clearly that approach had worked so well with his own kid. This laundry stealing was a minor offense, but the sheriff put Billy in jail. But he must have been a bit meh about his own plan because he stopped short of putting the kid behind actual bars. The sheriff didn't want to really punish anyone so young by throwing him into a cell, so he gave him the run of the corridor, which was a mistake because when he arrived back the next morning at the jail, the kid had shimmied up the chimney and escaped. What's interesting about this is that, in hindsight, it appears to have been a pivotal moment in Billy's life. It was just a scared straight moment. There was no intention to prosecute him whatsoever. He still escaped. He was a kid, you know. But now Billy wasn't just in trouble for stealing some laundry. He was a straight up fugitive. Maybe if he'd been caught at the time, the punishment would have still been minor. But this was a kid in trouble. And kids in trouble are often scared of worst case scenario consequences. So Billy became an outlaw. After escaping the Silver City Jail, Billy the Kid, still going by Henry or Kid Antrim, went to Fort Grant, Arizona. And that's when things escalated. It was midsummer of 1877 when Billy crossed paths with a guy named Francis K. Hill, nicknamed Windy because of his explosive temper. Cahill was apparently a straight-up jerk who ridiculed Billy for being so young, dressing in quote-unquote store pants with shoes on instead of boots. A contemporary named Gus Gildia later said, quote, Shortly after the kid came to Fort Grant, Wendy started abusing him. He would throw Billy to the floor, ruffle his hair, slap his face, and humiliate him before the men in the saloon. End quote. On August 17, 1877, Cahill and Billy were reportedly in a local saloon when Cahill hauled off and slapped Billy, calling him a son of a bitch. The two wrestled for the gun Billy kept stuffed in his trousers, with Cahill on the losing side of that fight. Billy fired, shooting Cahill in the stomach. The wound didn't kill him immediately. Rather, he died the next day after giving a statement to law enforcement in which he painted himself an innocent victim rather than an abusive instigator. A coroner's jury convened and decided that the shooting was criminal and unjustified and that, quote, Henry Antrim, alias Kid, is guilty thereof, end quote. The next step would have been for a territorial grand jury to decide whether to indict Billy, but the kid had fled right after the slaying. He left Arizona and went back to the New Mexico Territory, where he worked on a ranch southwest of Silver City. There, he befriended a guy named Tony Connor, who later said that Billy told him and others outright that he had killed a man in Arizona and was wanted by officers. He laid low on the ranch for a couple of weeks and then headed to Lincoln County. 
when he comes back to New Mexico, this is when he's assumed the alias William H. Bonnie. Starts riding with the Jesse Evans gang. Much of his next steps we discussed last episode, but for those needing a refresher, it goes something like this. Billy, at some point, for reasons unknown, had a falling out with Jesse Evans and ended up being hired by John Tunstall, who had aligned himself with Alexander McSween in a business feud with Jimmy Dolan and, at first, Lawrence Murphy. That's why you hear the phrase, the Murphy-Dolan faction, in connection with the Lincoln County War. In reality, though, by the time Billy's with Tunstall, Murphy was out of the picture, so it really was mostly Dolan and some underlings. Tunstall was killed under questionable circumstances in February of 1878, prompting Billy to take part in several shootings that led to multiple deaths. Buck Morton and two other men believed to have killed Tunstall, Sheriff William Brady believed to have sent Morton to accost Tunstall, and Buck shot Roberts, who had been a Murphy Dolan ally. But in reality, it seems like his death was the stuff of wrong place, wrong time. It was the sheriff's death that really pissed off law enforcement, though. That played a big role in the standoff at the lawyer McSween's house. That, after five long days, led to the deaths of several regulators and McSween himself. Then came Governor Lou Wallace with his amnesty offer that covered tons of people. But not Billy the Kid, because Billy had been indicted for Sheriff Brady's murder, and Wallace's amnesty did not wipe the slate clean for anyone already indicted for murder. So the kid remained a wanted man. Even though Billy the Kid had been indicted in Sheriff Brady's murder, Josh Taylor said there's a solid chance Billy might never have been arrested for it, much less convicted of it, if he'd kept a low profile. You could do anything, anything, cold-blooded murder in front of everybody in the Old West. If you're not lynched by vigilantes, that's a big if, because that happened a lot. And that's kind of the reason they were there. If you were not lynched by vigilantes, you had nothing to worry about. More than likely, if it went to trial, you are not going to get prosecuted. If you are prosecuted, you're sent to a jail that everybody, everybody escaped from jail. You just walked out of jail back in those days. If you had trouble hearing those last few words, they were, you just walked out of jail back in those days. Now, several of the already indicted regulators left the territory to lay low a while and then returned to face little or no consequences for the violence in which they'd partaken during the Lincoln County War. Among those was Josiah Dox Gerlach, who had been the regulators' third leader and who lived into old age. I know that's not how Young Guns 2 depicted things, but in truth, Skurlock did not move to New York, where he was arrested while jovially teaching a classroom full of young students. In reality... After the Lincoln County War, he's another one that said, I'm done, I'm tapping out. Moved to Texas, started teaching school. Basically was a teacher for the rest of his life. Nobody ever hunted him down. As long as you got out of the territory, you were good. You were golden. Skurlock was indeed intelligent and emotional, a poet. He was a member of the Theophysical Society. He sold his guns, got married, and had several kids. He spent a lot of time at the library and writing letters and... Did not talk about the war and lived out the rest of his days in peace. Which is in stark contrast to the route Billy took. In the coming months, Billy kills again. Some say as many as 18 people. But he always believes he's on the side of justice. This is from a History Channel documentary called Cowboys and Outlaws, The True Story of Billy the Kid. Historian Paul Hutton. 
Today we would call him sort of a sociopath. Every killing that he engaged in, he excused. And he had an excuse for everything, which of course teenagers often do anyway. But he sensed that he was on the side of right. It is kind of interesting to take his age into consideration as you're weighing Billy's actions in this time frame. He was, after all, not yet 20. He had witnessed dozens of deaths, committing at least some of them himself. Life in the Wild West felt cheap, and he had the same developmental issues that all teenagers have. Remember what an idiot you were at 18? I sure do. Thank goodness I hadn't also been raised in a climate that devalued human life. Everyone was tired of dealing with struggling regulators, Billy first and foremost. New Mexico Governor Lou Wallace, who by the way moonlighted as an author and wrote the best-selling novel Ben-Hur, A Tale of Christ, published in the fall of 1880, was not a Billy fan. This is in part because a guy named Chapman was murdered in Lincoln, supposedly by a crew that included Billy, after Wallace had declared that amnesty business. This pissed Wallace off because it undermined his authority and put Lincoln residents on edge, fearing that the violence that had just seemed to dissipate would ramp back up again. Wallace ordered the arrests of Billy and another outlaw, a mere 16-year-old sidekick named Tom O'Falliard. As Wallace's men searched for the two, Billy wrote Wallace the first of several letters. He, in short, offered to snitch. He wrote, quote, I was present when Mr. Chapman was murdered and know who did it. If it was arranged so that I could appear in court, I could give the designed information, but I have indictments against me for things that happened in the late Lincoln County War, and I'm afraid to give up because my enemies would kill me. If it is in your power to annul those indictments, I hope you will do so, so as to give me a chance to explain. I have no wish to fight anymore. Indeed, I have not raised an arm since your proclamation." End quote. Wallace arranged a meeting. Billy demanded two things, immunity from prosecution and protection from reprisals. Wallace said, sure, if you testify before the grand jury and trial court and help me convict the killer of Chapman, I'll not only let you go scot-free, but I'll even pardon you for anything that you did do during the Lincoln County War. At first, Billy said no dice. Two of Chapman's killers were gang leader Jesse Evans and a sidekick, both of whom he figured would be happy to shoot him dead before he could testify. Wallace calmed his fears, saying, hey, it so happens that those two dudes are in custody right now, and also we'll perform a fake arrest that will look so real everyone will think you're in jail because we arrested you, not because you're snitching. Billy agreed to this, and then found out the next day that Evans and co. had escaped from jail. He didn't back out of his agreement, but so resumed his fears of being shot dead before getting to testify and get his pardon. His testimony came in April of 1879. He named a few men as Chapman's killers, including Evans and Jimmy Dolan of the Murphy Dolan faction. The grand jury indicted those two men, which should have translated into Billy being pardoned, per his agreement with Wallace. But District Attorney William Logan Reinerson reneged on that deal because, as one newspaper wrote, Reinerson was, quote-unquote, a Dolan man. Billy was held for the murder of Sheriff Brady for three months awaiting trial. In June of 1879, he managed to escape before the trial started, 
He did so thanks to a Sheriff Brady successor, this one named Sheriff Kimball, who chose to look the other way. It's crazy how lawless the law has been at times. Billy wandered a bit and apparently spent some time in Las Vegas with a guy he introduced to others as Mr. Howard, but whom he eventually identified as the notorious gangster Jesse James. That, by the way, is according to Adley's book, which cites the reporting of Ash Upton, a journalist of questionable credibility. Sources who don't believe Upton abound, but Udley deemed it at least possible because Jesse James was known to go by the alias Thomas Howard, and he supposedly did stay in Las Vegas in late 1879. For the next several months, Billy dodged arrest time and time again, sometimes by facing down the deputies sent to arrest him and intimidating the guy badly enough that he ran instead of confronting him. Eventually, Billy made his way to Fort Sumner. In November 1880, Lincoln County residents elected someone new to be the county sheriff, Pat Garrett. Author and historian Roger McGrath said Garrett was an imposing physical figure. He stood well over six foot four, leaned his muscle bone and, and sinew, evidently a fearless character, had a bit of mean streak in him. Garrett was such a big fellow that the Hispanic residents nicknamed him Juan Largo, as in Long John. Like Billy, he was a regular at Fort Sumner area parties and known as a skilled dancer. In 1880, when Garrett reached 30 years old, he had established himself as quiet and soft-spoken, but also tough, not to be crossed. He was cool and calm in dire situations, admired for his markmanship and horsemanship, He ran against Sheriff Kimball, the guy who had previously looked the other way when Billy the Kid escaped jail, on a law and order platform that won over voters. Garrett likely hadn't been as close with Billy as some dramatizations suggest. They weren't writing buddies as depicted in Young Guns 2, for example. But he did know him well enough to readily recognize him, which in these days was key. Not only that, but... He knew Billy's habits, and he knew his favorite haunts. So when Pat Garrett set out on his trail, he had a pretty good idea where Billy the Kid would be and what he'd be doing. By this point, too, it's important to understand that Billy wasn't some completely unknown desperado. As the Cowboy and Outlaws documentary explained, He's become the face of the violence. Here's how one contemporary newspaper put it. Quote, Billy the Kid was the terror not only of Lincoln County, but of the whole territory. A young desperado who has long been noted as a bold thief, a cold-blooded murderer, having perhaps killed more men than any person of his age in the world. End quote. Pat Garrett set off to stop him. As Sheriff Pat Garrett set out to track down Billy the Kid, he encountered some early stumbling blocks. Billy was pretty well-liked, at least among fellow outlaws and also the residents of a lot of the towns he frequented. He was bilingual, easily hobnobbing with the territory's Hispanic population. He avoided drinking. He seemed to have a decent moral code. In short, he was a killer, sure, no one doubted that, but he was also, at least to non-law enforcement folk, a stand-up guy. Garrett inched closer and closer to Billy over the subsequent weeks, but only managed to corner his friends. He killed Tom O'Falliard, 
who again was just 16 years old, followed by another buddy mentioned last episode, the former regulator Charlie Bowdry. It's believed that Bowdry was shot because he had been mistaken for Billy because he happened to be wearing a hat similar to one the kids sometimes wore, a sombrero with a green band. Fatally wounded, Bowdry fell into Garrett's arms after the shooting. His last words were, I wish. Billy the Kid, seeing that Garrett was set to shoot down anyone he thought might possibly be him, finally surrendered in December 1880. He was to await trial in a jail where he was overseen by a deputy, Bob Ollinger, who beat and bullied his infamous outlaw prisoner. That behavior would prove ill-advised. More on that in a minute. First, Billy stood trial for the murder of Sheriff Brady. Hoping to short-circuit the proceedings, he again wrote Governor Lou Wallace, who Billy felt had betrayed him by not insisting that the district attorney pardon him, as promised, after his testimony in the Chapman murder case. Wallace didn't respond to Billy's letter this time. As the trial unfolded, it seemed clear the deck was stacked against Billy. From the documentary, Billy the Kid, The True Story. Well, if you ever read the judge's instructions to the jury, essentially, he told them that if Billy was in New Mexico and Sheriff Brady was killed, he's guilty. And that was the result. He was found guilty, sentenced to death in the spring of 1881. They brought him back up to Lincoln to be hanged. Billy was taken to the Lincoln County Courthouse, where he was guarded by two deputies, J.W. Bell and Bob Ollinger, the same guy who had made his shit list before the trial. While the details of precisely what happened are disputed, What we know is that on April 28, 1881, Billy the Kid managed to escape and Bell and Ollinger ended up dead. It began with Ollinger being briefly away and Billy asking to use an outhouse to relieve himself. On the way back in, Billy did one of three things. One, he managed to find a loose gun in the jail and shoot Bell dead. Two, he'd retrieved a gun left by an accomplice inside the outhouse and used that to shoot Bell. Or the third story, the one that I personally believe, is that Billy and Bell came up the stairs and Billy slipped out of his manacles. This is something we know he could do. He was a skinny lad, after all. He hit Bell over the head with the manacles. The two men then struggled for the gun. Billy got it and shot Bell. In any case, it appears that the ruckus drew the attention of Ollinger, who was outside but nearby. Billy grabbed Ollinger's shotgun from the jail's armory. According to eyewitness accounts, Billy rushes to this window as Ollinger hurries across the street, alerted by the sound of the gunfire. As he draws underneath the window, Bob hears a chillingly cheery and familiar voice call out, Hello, Bob. Billy pulls both triggers on the shotgun. Ollinger is hit by 18 buckshot, killing him instantly. He falls to the ground, a dead man killed by his own shotgun. Then Billy escaped. This is what earned Billy the legendary status he retains to this day. It was such a daring escape, such a cool story with a hello, Bob, of it all, that the townspeople who might not have been huge fans beforehand suddenly found themselves rooting for Billy. Some even helped him flee by cutting off his shackles and giving him supplies and a horse. With his escape, Billy the Kid assures himself a place in the legend of the Old West. This one-time teenage drifter becomes the star of national news and dime novels. Some of the tales are, of course, not true, 
but it's not like there were diligent fact-checkers in the era. People loved the tale, and with each story published, the legend of Billy the Kid grew more daring and deadly. But that made Billy even more of a symbol to law enforcement than he already was. Here was this kid, not only breaking the law left and right, but killing lawmen and escaping imprisonment. He had just been sentenced to death for Sheriff Brady's murder a few years earlier, yet townspeople actually helped him escape. It was infuriating to people like Pat Garrett, who had staked their egos on taking Billy down. Now, if Billy had fled to Mexico at this point, chances are the law on the other side of the border would not have followed him. And he had routinely integrated himself into Hispanic communities so often that it seems likely he could have done so again down south. His Spanish was said to be impeccable. But Billy didn't go to Mexico. He stayed in Lincoln County. Some people claim that there's a woman to blame. Paulita Maxwell. Supposedly on July 14th, 1881, Billy decided to visit Paulita in Fort Sumner after nightfall. He noticed two strange men on the front porch and felt uncomfortable, so he supposedly went looking for Paulita. What Billy doesn't know is that Pat Garrett is sitting in the next room, invited here by Paulita's brother, who suspects that Billy's been hanging around. Billy entered the room of Pete Maxwell, Paulita's father, and sensed an unfamiliar presence. He asked, Quién es? Quién es? Who is it? Who is it? Garrett would later say he recognized Billy's voice immediately and opened fire. Now, years later, there would be conspiracy theories that Garrett didn't kill Billy the Kid that night, but most legit historians don't buy that. People who knew Billy well identified his body after he was shot. Josh Taylor of Wild West Extravaganza again. A big misconception is, this one drives me batty sometimes, is that if Billy the Kid had been killed by Pat Garrett, they would have taken a picture of him. After all, we do have some photos of certain slain outlaws, Jesse and Frank James among them, but photographs were uncommon at the time. Josh said Fort Sumner was a small town with some 300 residents, none of whom was a photographer by trade. It would have been about a several-day journey for Pat to go and find a photographer, come back to Fort Sumner and take a picture. At the time of the shooting, though, there were no questions posed about the identity of the man Garrett killed that night. Newspapers nationwide reported the kid's demise, explaining that Pete Maxwell had witnessed the event, and seeing as how Pete was Billy's girlfriend's father, his identification of Billy's body was accepted. Governor Lou Wallace had put up a $500 reward for Billy slaying, which Pat Garrett eventually claimed. I say eventually because there was some hubbub about whether that amount had to be paid personally by Wallace, who was no longer governor at this point, or by the territorial government. In any case, Garrett did eventually pocket that dough, plus some $6,000 more thanks to donations from powerful people in the Santa Fe ring, who were happy that Billy's time on Earth had been shortened. And then Garrett wrote a book. I was but 11 years old when I went to the mall and placed an order for that book, titled The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid. It was not an easy read for someone that age, but now that I'm older and can tolerate the weird punctuation rules of the 19th century, I still don't love it. It's not a great read. 
and it's apparently not considered reliable either. Ash Upton served as a ghostwriter for it, and it's widely believed he embellished quite a bit of the tale. Ash Upton, he was a pretty big drinker. He uh, was given to romantic prose. He made a lot of stuff up. So Billy the Kid's birthday is also Ash Upton's birthday, right? So he didn't know the kid's birthday. He just scribbled in his own birthday as a placeholder, and it stuck. The book, partway through, shifts from third person to first, and that's the portion that Pat Garrett apparently wrote himself. Most of the stuff in that section is considered far more accurate. Still, Pat Garrett wrote the book, and it was a flop big time. Garrett would end up struggling financially before being shot to death in 1908, which is another story altogether. He did not live long enough to learn that a guy called Brushy Bill Roberts stepped forward in the late 1940s to claim that he was the real Billy the Kid. Though that man's tombstone identifies him as AKA Billy the Kid, his identity has never been proven. In the early 2000s, Lincoln County officials began a campaign to exhume the kid's mother, Catherine, to do DNA testing. But that never happened, so there will always be some questioning whether Billy the Kid was actually killed by Garrett in 1881 in Fort Sumner. To research this story, and the last one, I read Robert M. Utley's Billy the Kid, A Short and Violent Life, and owe so many thanks to Josh Taylor, host of the very fun history podcast, Wild West Extravaganza. If you haven't checked it out, I encourage it. I also watched several documentaries, including Cowboys and Outlaws by the History Channel. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs>